If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Discussing national and international issues. You're listening to Pella Neuroth Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hi. Today's talk is going to be about uh, the revolution that happened in 2016, um, the election of Trump and the Brexit vote that happened the same year. Now, to its detractors, it was the moment when the sort of uh, dormant fascist elements of the uh, of the popular of the popular vote ex- showed itself out, and it had to be extirpated and minimised by by the liberal elites who knew much better. But for the people who voted for Brexit and for Trump, it was more like the um, long quashed working class, white working class who uh, lived in the Rust Belt, who had blue collar jobs that were disappearing, who'd seen their wages stagnate and their status uh, reduced uh, in favor of sort of other holy objects like the refugee or the transgender person. And they were reasserting their will, if you like. Um, and they did so via Trump, who cleverly cornered the market in this very, very large segment of the population. Um, I was uh, I'm very quite pro-Trump, and um, but I was actually skeptical of Brexit. Um, and f- in this, the intersecting Venn diagrams of people supporting Trump, but against Brexit, that category must be quite small, because if you support Trump, you usually supported Brexit, and against Trump, you usually against Brexit. So I'm, I'm going to try and explain a little bit why. Um, I think it uh, the Brexit thing, I was, I was working in Brussels when the debate leading up to Brussels uh, Brexit happened, and I had a sort of um, a worm's eye view, which might not necessarily be the correct one, but I thought I'd, uh, I'd give it anyway. Um, I knew some of the Brexit people. Um, the, uh, the, the Brussels community of uh, English speakers was relatively tight-knit and the journalist corps of which I was part um, knew each other quite well and there was this a magazine called The Sprout which as in Brussels Sprout which was a sort of private eye which was a satirical magazine in the UK but for the European Union and you could see the seeds of some of the Brexit movement there. Um, I did some articles for them and I, I found out when I was uh, doing quite a lot of uh, other stuff for for London magazines because there's a lot of legislation going through Brussels, but it was no problem getting in touch with people. When I said I was from the Sprout, uh, hatred and fear entered these Eurocrats' eyes because the Sprout exposed all the shenanigans and sex scandals and and drugs and corruption in the EU, and so they didn't like that at all. But we we gathered uh, in a pub on Thursday evenings, maybe just opposite the European Parliament, and my my sort of ambivalence towards Brexit might have been apparent, but they never cared as long as I produced good stories. And I, maybe it's this thing about right-wing people, they're more tolerant of diverse views than the left-wing people. There's no need to conform ideologically. And we never talked about really politics, funnily enough. But the editor of this magazine, The Sprout, went on to become one of the leading figures in the Brexit movement as a right-hand man to Nigel Farage, who'll be familiar to many of you as the man with a pint and a cap who represented the cheery man on the street and his common sense views and led Britain to this independence from the European Union. I mean, the the thing about uh, Brussels from, a, I'll try and say the positive views is that um, Brussels had a population of, uh, or ruled over a population of 500 million. 
And I found that uh, a lot of the people there were very, very intelligent and wise and quite open-minded. Um, the rules on the ground might have been far more onerous, and that's not an aspect of the EU that I saw. What I saw was a gigantic campfire of well-meaning intellectuals, if you like. And it was a time when I was commuting between London and Brussels and working for papers on both sides. And I went to a lot of conferences, as one does. And I met lobbyists who said, well, actually, Brussels is a much more interesting place to work in because the commission, the Eurocrats, are much more open-minded and flexible about legislation than Whitehall, which is the name for the London bureaucracy. So they're more interesting to work with. Whereas I often found, uh, I found that the quality of discussion in Brussels was very high, and it was pretty high in London too, but the, the London elite didn't have quite those same perspectives because you're talking about a population of 60 million versus a population of 500 million. So I felt that, that this is almost heretical to say the talent pool was, was larger in Brussels. So I enjoyed that. And also felt that when the Brits came to Brussels, they had a sense of entitlement about them. We're best, you all speak English and you all read our books and laugh at our comedies, but we don't know much about you. And uh, the only people who competed for them in, with arrogance was really the French. Uh, and the British were always complaining about the French superciliousness. But I mean, I think the British were competitors in that category too. Um, I went back to London quite a lot, and I attended the London side of this Brexit movement, uh, which was headed by one of whose heads was a guy called Robert Olds, who ran something called the Bruges Group, which was named after the speech, a town in, in Belgium where Margaret Thatcher, who was the sort of uh, godmother of the anti-European movement, gave a famous speech that resisted further integration into Europe. And Robert introduced a lot of clever economists who persuaded us that Brexit was a good thing for the economy and for the city of London and for British exports and for British free trade agreements. So there you had a more interesting and nuanced conversation. Um, he's actually supposed to be our next guest, and uh, we'll see if he comes on. But this is TNT Radio. Clashing on the controversies. It's a woke society, and I am fed up with it. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. It seems that uh, Robert has done a Brexit on us, so we exited the room. Um, but I think that what uh, I really want to know about is the possibilities of whether Brexit came off as planned, because I haven't followed the debate so avidly. I mean, you could. I think what uh, the pro-British, pro-Brexiteers were saying was that, well, it gave us a sense of dignity back and we are genuinely free. Um, but to my mind, and I'm, I was hoping for a pushback from Robert, uh, as he's a much, uh, a very seasoned debater against what you call the Remainers, sort of dismissively, um, was that some, that the free trade agreements haven't turned out as, as, as wanted. I think that they were hoping for a free trade agreement with the US, and that didn't deliver. I mean, Joe Biden and Sunak, the British Prime Minister, are not really good friends. I mean, I think that Biden is, has Irish antecedents and there might be other issues involved. But um, it was clear that when Sunak paid his traditional visit to Washington when uh, he got the, the job um, as prime minister, he was not uh, granted that particular thing that might have earned him a re-election. Um, and then you've got um, the... Immigration was the hot issue. I mean, I think um, 
immigration is was the unspoken issues. I think that a lot of the pro-Brexiteers talk beautiful words about constitutional independence and uh, Britain never, never shall be slaves, you know, like rural Britannia. And that, those were beautiful words. And it was often, it was often a spitfire flying in the sky in the white cliffs of Dover and uh, maybe a, a Henry V somewhere. And um, I think that a lot of the people who voted for Brexit did so in the expectation that this massive immigration that was coming both from Europe legally, because you could move anywhere in the European Union. And so in the from 2004 onwards, for about 10 or 12 years, you had a large number of very educated Poles and Romanians who, for whom Britain was their opening to the West. Um, and even as Germany, I think, was closing, had its borders closed to, 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 um, to the Poles. So what you actually had was a new sort of middle class coming from Eastern Europe who often outcompeted Brits in jobs. Um, and they were often better educated, ed educated and they often worked in very bad jobs because for them, it, they were used to communism, if you like. So it was all new and fresh. And some of them settled and some of them went back home having a, a sort of a mastered English and under their belt. And so to my surprise, I think that was a, was a cause. There was, there was a sense of resentment. And then the Romanians came, I think, in 2011. They set their middle class over. Um, and then there were scandals about, you know, uh, the remain um, sort of near do wells from Poland and Romania importing crime, and um, not and sort of sleeping on the streets and drinking beer on benches, which is definitely not the done thing in, in the UK. Um, and the next, uh, but the thing is that the, the, the after Brexit, with what we've seen in the last years, is seven hundred thousand people who come in annually. So the Tories having ridden into power on this thing of reducing immigration, have actually completely failed. And immigration from non-white countries is now much bigger than any immigration was during Brexit. So I can't see them uh, winning the next election. So, I, and I sort of warned that these might be some of the consequences of Brexit, uh, but uh, we'll see. I mean, I didn't, uh, Robert hasn't turned up, but what we've got instead is Jeremy Nell, who's from South Africa, and who will tell us maybe a little bit about uh, the South African perspective on, on Brexit and other perhaps more important things. Hello, Jeremy, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Fine. I've your, you've got an excellent uh, podcast, which I've been recommended to, to watch many times. Where, tell us a little bit about um, your, your topics of, of your, your focus um, from your South African perspective, what's happening today? I've talked. I met many South Africans, and they had a very clear-eyed view. Maybe because they had one foot in the global South <clears throat> and one foot in Europe. You know. Yeah, I think that is a good point. Um, I've often joked that we here at the bot at the bottom tip of Africa, we are a bit schizophrenic. Uh, on the one hand, we we enjoy our our benefits from the Western markets, and then at the same time, we also enjoy our connection uh, with the East, you know, via our BRICS, our, our BRICS relationships. Uh, but I think, I think at the end of the day, we, despite the fact that we might be perhaps the, the strongest economy in Africa, I think politically we are very, very, very um, complex. Um, as you know, I mean, we've, we've got an apartheid past, we've got a lot of racial conflict, although I think it's a lot better than what the media might might have you believe. Uh, but I think in terms of, of going forward, our general trajectory 
is at least in my opinion uh, pointing in the correct direction. I think that as much as I would me personally like to see say the United States and the UK and I suppose the five eyes generally speaking the Commonwealth uh, striving for excellence I, I think that there is a very clear indication that there is some sort of implosion going on and I I don't quite know where it's all coming from I think it's a it's a big collection of of variables from uh, sort of cultural degeneracy to um, very aggressive foreign policy particularly from the United States and um, and I think that we are sort of benefiting from being in Africa because we can observe what's going on and then we can kind of choose where we where we want to go so we have fairly good relationships with you know with China and Russia for example as well as the US make no mistake um, I don't want to see the implosion of these of these Western countries but I think a lot of it is happening uh, internally. I mean, I think it was Yuri Bezmenov who said in that interview in, ironically, 1984 with uh, G. Edward Griffin, when he said that uh, when he came over from, from, from the Soviet Union to the US, he couldn't believe that he was seeing uh, the destruction of the US occurring without even a bullet being fired. Um, and I think he was referring to sort of a cultural Marxist infiltration that was, that was happening. And um, and I think one of the beauties of being on the African continent is that we, we here, for example, have a very healthy skepticism and suspicion towards uh, government in general because of you know the, the way that Western countries have 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 always clamoured around our resources, um, as well as the fact that we've had apartheid, so we've had a uh, a lot of Western influence, and then of course breaking out of it, as you know, with Gaddafi trying to break free from from Western influence. And so there's always been this tug of war happening on the African continent. And so as a result, I think our general suspicion towards the state uh, is fairly healthy. Um, but I think that perhaps is a blessing in disguise also, because it does create an opportunity for us to to move in the correct direction, uh, you know, in the next generation, at least. It's a very long-winded answer to your question, but I, I think what I'm trying <laughs> to do is also create a picture I was going to say, I was in, in South Africa, and I made, made a point of talking to a lot of Afrikaners, because in the Anglo media, mm. which we were all brought up in, they're seen as kind of little Hitlers, you know, I don't know if you watch Spitting Image, mm. but that mm. famous rabbit puppet show yes. has them as baboons and, and really red rednecks, terrible people, and people are more affected by things like cartoons and sketches than you think, you know, it's... Politics mm. go by the wayside in complex books. So I want to make a point of the Afrikaners. First of all, they were very, very aware of the world. They were very outspoken. And they were also yeah. still quite anti-British because they felt that the anti-apartheid struggle was in some sense a way of the British and the Americans to yeah. say, well, I mean, yeah. we, you know, Sharpville say this is famous incident when 60 people were killed um, and, um, you know, became the starting gun for the uh, anti-apartheid campaign. Well, that's 60 people killed. But... We now know that the British were killing thousands of people in Kenya in the Mau Mau rebellion. So it's a bit like, mm. well, look, don't look, look uh, here, don't look here. So Afrikaners felt victimized a little bit by the British. Don't forget, there there were a lot of Afrikaners in the concentration camps, and I mean, Emily Hobhouse yeah. wrote about that, um, and I mean, that was in the thousands. And uh, and but to be fair, to be fair, that was a long time ago, and I think the idea that that the Afrikaners 
uh, still dislike the British. I think that's largely just a kind of academic talking point. I mean, I don't think it it really is like that now. Uh, kind of like the French versus the English. I think it's more kind of sporting rivalry than anything else. But I think right. I think there is there is definitely though this desire. Uh, for the Afrikaners to still become independent um, in, in South Africa. And of course, they've got nowhere else to go. So it, it does create a, a, a very interesting sort of, uh, you know, geopolitical perspective going on because there is a diaspora of sorts. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to talk to you next week, um, people from Afriforum who, you know, yeah. this uh, organization was sort of semi-paramilitary, semi-cultural organization. And they say openly they felt as oppressed by global culture, globalist culture. They they don't talk about the blacks so much, but it's clearly that this is a focus for their for their feelings anyway. And um, mm. they they're talking about these homelands, which will expand like ink blots of South Africa, and then kind of be virtually connected, as it were. So you don't need physical connections in these days of the internet. And I wonder what I mean. I thought, well, is that going to happen to Europe when Europe gets more and more immigrants? You know. Um, yeah, the, the culture of Scandinavia is quite similar to the Boer culture, uh, although the Swedes are totally pro-Anglo in this in that d- debate. So, but Sweden might end up like uh, threatened. They've never been threatened, but they, they might end up threatened. But just mm. to kind of swerve back a little bit because to my introductory talk, um, do South Africans have a view on on Brexit at all and on Trump? Yeah, yeah. I think if you are somewhat right-wing conservative, you know, in that sort of legacy uh, terminology, uh, they would generally favor uh, Brexit uh, because it, it, it means secession of, of sorts. It's, it's a type of independence. Um, and generally speaking, I think uh, if you are that way inclined, you know, leaning more to, to that kind of ideological thinking, which I do, um, I, for example, support the idea of, of Brexit. I support any type of decentralization of a country. In fact, I would be happy to see South Africa breaking apart into 11 countries based on, let's say, eth- ethnical lines or, or, or population group um, uh, 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 diversity. Very, very happy to have borders because I think borders make great neighbors. But I think mm. also um, if you are more sort of liberal, liberally inclined, more left-wing in those sort of legacies, Terms and I say that because I think a lot of a lot of these term, terms don't mean much anymore. I think they've they've become very intertwined. Uh, you know, if you, for example, if you look at the neocons, they've they have overlapping sort of foreign policy with with the Democrats. But I think, by and large, uh, me I support any type of decentralization. So whether it's the UK splitting even into its own set of what's it four or five countries. I was a big fan of Scotland breaking away. Um, and unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, that didn't really work. And I, I would love to see that happening again, the at least the attempt. Um, but I because I don't quite understand why you need to have a massive amount of territory. The there, there is an argument that I've heard, I don't know if you if you agree, but there is an argument that, well, if you are more divided, then you can be conquered more. Um, and so therefore secession is a bad idea. Okay. So then what, what is the logical conclusion then the whole world must be, ha- must have one government because then everybody is no longer divided. That yeah. is a terrible idea because that's, that's exactly a new world order concept. Uh, that's a great reset agenda 2030 concept, global governance. Mm. So, mm. so, so the logical 
the logical conclusion that I make in the other direction is, well, let's just decentralize as much as possible, Brexit being one of those. Well, my sort of counter argument was that, I mean, since we lived in the Stone Age, we there's always this balance between freedom and individualism, freedom from, you know, freedom mm. from the community's disapproval or whatever, and the freedom to, which is collective empowerment by being able to collaborate, because we couldn't all live, mm. you know, we need to band into tribes because we have separate roles, you know, I mean, we have one guy hunting, one guy, whatever. So we're not, no mm. man is an island, you know, and my old argument for, I, I really don't know what to think anymore, but my old argument for, for, for continued EU was something like, well, Charles de Gaulle said, well, we're all medium-sized European countries in a, la- in a mm. world of beer moths like the Indians and the, and the Russians and the Americans. Let's stick together to defend our separateness. You know, I don't want a pe- European federation. I want France mm. to be France and Britain to be Britain. But we have to stick exactly. together and with our backs to each other and then around a hostile world. But then, of course, you, the European Union based in Brussels with thousands of bureaucrats who are delightful, you know, <laughs> but uh, it creates momentum. And I think that um, mm. if uh, Robert had uh, deigned to turn up, he, I would have been able to tell him that my, my view is kind of more aligned with his than I, it was a few years ago, because Which I don't know if what? it's Britain's absence from it, but this Ursula van der Leyen, terrible woman, I mean, you know, terrible. And that uh, mm. Borrell, who the hell do they think they are? Declaring war on Russia, you know, with no army but yeah. and no real yeah. mandate. I mean, here we're talking about hard power, which is something that shouldn't be left to the European Union. It's, the European Union is good when it talks about widgets and prawn cocktail flavor crisps, you know. But anyway. But I mean, hold on. Let me let me let me ask you a question, if you don't mind. What yeah? What is the what is the end goal of having something like the European Union? What is the goal? Because what is wrong with Germany and France and Italy and Greece all determining their own futures? Because they can still negotiate and be friends and, and, and have economic ties. You don't have yeah. to all be, you don't have to have a, 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 a removed, a, the, you don't have to have an absence of a border in order for that to happen. That's true. Well, I mean, I think, um, I'm not, I can't, um, answer in a very good rational way it's a, it is also an emotional thing i think that uh, mm. for for the brits genuinely feel uh different i think if you're a continental and you cross between these borders all the time and my british 100 british friends say well it's only because they're occupied and they don't have any individuality so they have an yeah. occup- a slave mentality i don't think so i think um that it was it has been very convenient just to be able to nip across the borders i mean i i can remember a time when um you had to, the border checks even between Belgium and France, which are two very similar countries, and they had all these currencies. And now it's the euro. So just from a, and I think the EU fathers knew that they knew that middle class people, especially like engineers and doctors and so on, they're the mm. ones who are mobile. It's not the the plumber, you know, who yeah. is stuck in, and he sees an overwhelming arrival of Poles and Romanians and Gypsies and so on. And but it's it's the it's the it's the entrepreneurs who can and engineers who just have to can hop on a plane and do a contract in Spain mm. and France and then enjoy a bit okay, of so Spanish food at home. So it was a so middle class thing, really. It was a convenience thing. And then these are the mm. people that they talk about anywheres versus the somewheres who are the working class, you know, the, the British people who. Yeah. But um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I think. Well, sorry, just I, I, one more thing. Yeah. No, yeah. Carry yeah. On. Now, I, I was going to say, um, the, the, the idea, oh, so, hold on, there's a little bit of a delay. Sorry, go on. Right. My point, because I, I wrote um, uh, one of the most interesting topics, uh, something that uh, has an enormous emotional resonance for me. Now I'm in mm. Sweden, which is a country that's at peace. So I think about things that 
are outside Sweden because it's a sort of slightly dull country sometimes. Nothing happens, but it's a great place to be. <laughs> it's the First World War, right? <laughs> Which is the uh, catastrophe of the 20th century because it led to the Second World War. First World War, I think, I don't think that the, the Western allies were the good guys at all. I think it was a very evenly balanced guilt question. And, um, but I mean, the, 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 these countries like Strasbourg, the, the, the border between Germany and France was so contested. And then they fought over it again. And so whole generations were wiped out completely. Mm. Think about how many novels were never written, how many YouTube channels were never started, whatever. All these geniuses. <laughs> Europe stopped winning Nobel Prizes after, you know, World War One, and a genius went to America. And, and so I think the Germans and the, 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 there are some idealists in, in France and Germany were sort of saying, well, you know, well, let's try this. You know, we'll we'll pool our materials for making war, which is iron and mm. coal and steel, and and we'll pool that, and then we literally can't fight each other. So that's the that's the idealistic thing. But people forget these things, or the new generations yeah. that don't worry about it. But anyway, what what were you going to say? No, I, I was going to say that the idea of having of having no borders is, as you point out rightly, so uh, it's it's very idealistic. I mean, John Lennon sang about it. You know, uh, you know, imagine a world. Yeah. It's got no borders and no everything, and we all just, you know, sing songs and, and hold hands and, and, and there are rainbows and unicorns. But the reality is, in my street, there are houses next to one another with a wall in between each one, and we each have our own property, and we have a front door. And hmm. there, isn't, there isn't open access to everybody. They have to knock. And if I let them in, they can come in, or if I don't want them to come in, then they don't come in. Uh, that is the border as it were. And there's, there's a sense of mutual respect. However, I can absolutely negotiate anything I want with them if I become friends with, with the neighbors and I can, I can offer them stuff. Let's say my wife grows vegetables and I can take over you know, extra vegetables to them and we can have a little bit of a, a trade of some sort. Now, you scale that up and you end up with, with essentially countries. Now, my position has, has adjusted over the years. I used to be this is this extreme individualist. I, I'm I don't buy that idea anymore. I think no man is an island, and I think that um, I think that communities, sorry, families, communities, and then by extension, uh, perhaps a nation, um, is is where we should be focusing. But I don't think you can have multiple nations all just living in kumbaya with one another, with a top down force. If that makes sense, there has to be a there has to be some sort of 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 bottom up negotiating going on, and that's and that's where I think borders do matter. Yeah, it could be. I mean, Sweden is becoming um, mm. it's a, it's a property thing because I think without property rights, you can't have freedom. Exactly. And, um, and the welfare state in Sweden seemed to be open to the all world's comers, so the taxpayers were not the people benefiting from the welfare state, and that's caused a mm. huge amount of resentment. But. Um, Jeremy, thank you very much. We'd like to talk to more about Brexit and South Africa another time. It's a, uh, it's a this pleasure. is Helena mm. Roth-Taylor, TNT Radio. TNT's Kate Shamarani. I'm of the, the belief that your body can totally, 100% heal itself. If you remove the offending things and you flood your body with what it needs. What do your dogs and your kids do when they get sick? They lie down and sleep, don't they? They don't want to eat. They get great big temperatures and they just want to rest. What, do you think you're a special special snowflake? You're any different? No, that's you as well. But what do they want to do when you go to the hospital? I've seen it firsthand in the last couple of weeks. They're just going to serve you rubbish food, wheat, sugar, dairy, animal protein, tea and coffee. 
fluoridated, fluoridated bromine water, drugs, pharmaceutical petroleum-based drugs. Kate Shamarani on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are opportunity zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. So many people who had no history of heart illnesses have got it now, or blood clotting after the COVID-19 vaccination. Punish those who hurt people with COVID madness. Lighting the fuse for freedom. TNT Radio. Yes, hello. Uh, we've, it, it's, I've, I've wanted to um, talk to you for ages, actually, because I was, um, uh, this is Joe Hoft, who, uh, I think wrote a book about the election steal and was the editor is the editor of a website called the Gateway Pundit, which I was reading religiously at the, around the time of the last post-election chaos. So our last talk was about uh, Brexit, and this is about the other tr phenomenon related to Brexit, which is the the Trump phenomenon. Now, I I really want to hear from you because what happened was I, I followed the Rudy Giuliani travels around the, the states. It was great television. I watched a couple of documentaries. There's one from the Epoch Times with Shade. And then I, I saw this Italian origin woman who sat in a car and was talking on Zoom to her, her viewers about how there's something to do with Italy or something and the CIA office there. And then there was a there was a, a, a gunfight between CIA agents at a computer central in Frankfurt or something. And then you know, it all died out. Uh, and then we, it, it, in the European media, and even though I'd never read the mainstream media, uh, we life moved on and we moved on to other things. And uh, I sometimes think about the election steal, especially when all these campaigns against Trump are continuing. And I I watched, I've looked into G Gateway Pundit sometimes, but I feel that you're, you're carrying on the narrative to those who are always following the story. But so, so for someone who's really interested in, in the election steal, uh, but is coming back to it after two two or three years. Was the election stolen? And can you give us some simple bits of evidence why? Well, great to be here. And, and uh, I appreciate you having me on it. Uh, enjoy it. So first time talking to somebody from uh, from where you're at. So really appreciate it. So um, yeah, I've written uh, three books on the election, on the 2020 election. Uh, the Steels, Volume 1s, 2, and 3. And um, maybe I should even step back a moment. My background before joining TNT, before writing for the Gateway Pundit with my twin brother, Jim, was in the corporate world. I uh, I was uh, a corporate executive, international corporate executive in Hong Kong for a decade or so. And before that, I traveled the world. And my background was either in finance or audit. 
And so I know how things should work. I've had to not just oversee a billion dollar block of business uh, my, myself for this one corporation, the financial reporting on that block, but I also audited similar blocks and uh, and similar types of uh, activities around the world in multiple countries. I've probably done two, 300 audits. So I, when, when this election occurred, I was back in the States working full-time at the Gateway Pundit with my brother. And uh, and all this just uh, just was like unbelievable what happened. So my first book I write about, it's called The Steel, Volume 1, Setting the Stage. I talk about all the things that happened leading up to the election. And I tried to kind of lay a, it's, it's easy with hindsight looking back as far as what happened. My second book was The Impossible Occurs, Volume 2. And that was about all the things that occurred that don't make any sense. And then the third book was The Cover-Up. And I've uh, even been with Steve Bannon and others and said, hey, uh, they've spent as much effort on the cover-up as they did on the actual steel itself. So so why was it stolen? Well, from my perspective, that of a professional auditor and uh, and probably the only auditor really that looked at this, which is pretty amazing, is that this, this, uh, this election was stolen because it never should have been certified. In the corporate world, we have to maintain certain standards. As a matter of fact, in the U.S., we have this thing called Sarbanes-Oxley, which is uh, was legislation from around the early 2000s, which mandated that your controls have to be in place. You can't have any gaps in anything related to your election, related to your processes. And that's the opposite with what's going on with our election systems in the U.S. They're totally broken. I'm actually with a new group here. We're working on how to how to fix our next election because because we can't have this happen again. And um, and anyways, we're finding that around 30 percent of all the controls we think need to be in place that we've identified 500 and some controls in our election process, uh, only 30 percent or so are in place. So we've got a mess in the U.S. We're not like, I've talked to somebody from Italy where they've said, you go in, you bring your booklet, your ID on election day, you vote, you leave, you vote, you leave, you get your ID back, you, they stamp your booklet and you're done. In the U.S., we've got absentee ballots, we've got mail-in ballots, all this escalated in 2020. And then we have um, the machines that we're using, which are calculating and tabulating results, which we're finding are not secure. Everything is broke. Everything's broke. So even, even this past week, on Monday, we had our first election of 2024. And it was the Iowa Caucus, and there was a CNN of all places, mainstream media, the really the uh, mouthpiece of mainstream election of 2024. And it was the Iowa Caucus, and there was a CNN of all places, mainstream media, the really the uh, mouthpiece of mainstream media. They did a poll, an entrance poll, all the Iowans that went in to vote on uh, on Monday, and 68 percent of the GOP voters, the the party of uh, President Trump, 68 percent believe that Joe Biden's uh, election was illegitimate. And and that wow. then we're not getting that from the mainstream media. We're not getting that from, from uh, the mainstream cable. It's coming from sites like this. It's coming from books like mine, from sites like the Gateway Pundit. People want the truth and we can tell that they're lying to us. And even, the, even on Monday night, MSNBC and CNN, when Trump won resoundingly, set the record for the biggest win ever in the Iowa caucuses, they decide not to show his his uh, speech after winning. Instead, they show second and third place, um, uh, you know, individuals by the name of Nikki Haley and uh, the governor of 
Florida, Ron DeSantis. So that's where our mainstream's at, and they're just they're they're laughable now. And most yeah. Americans, I think, are seeing through that. Can I just ask you? Do you think that the the stealing? I'll go. I love to read your book, of course, but. Was the stealing at the level of the, the machines? I mean, some people said that data was being sent to China or to Italy, where it was manipulated by the CIA or something. Or was it right. at the level of ballot harvesting and mail-in ballots? And who were the yeah. perpetrators? Was it the intelligence agencies? Was it the foreign power? Was it the Democratic Party? Was it many different manipulations right. or is it a centralized manipulation? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll tell you real quick. So we don't know. If I, I In my book, I don't make a statement, hey, China manipulated our votes or any any place overseas. We really don't have the data for that. Some of that might have been an op to lead us astray over here when the real results were right in front of our face. And, and the very first thing happened on day one. It was the, the day after the election when we're supposed to have our laws state that we have observers there to watch the workers as they're counting these ballots. The, uh, in fact, in Detroit, in Philadelphia, in Atlanta, in Maricopa County, which is Phoenix, these big cities and key states, people were kicked out. They were not allowed to observe the counting process. So immediately at that point, all those ballots that were counted from that point forward in that lot never should have been counted because, again, from a professional auditing perspective, they're invalid. We also know, for example, that there was an audit, and I write about this in my third book in Arizona after the election, where they didn't do signature val ver uh, verifications. And that was the big issue in Maricopa because they had all these mail-in ballots for the first time ever. But that that was uh, that was somehow uh, omitted from the audit, which is shocking. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a crappy audit. But the other thing that happened is, is they were opening all these boxes, pallets of boxes, uh on uh, on pallets uh the first 13 pallets which is about uh 250,000 or so ballots maybe more every single box had been pre-opened the seals had been broken so again from an auditing perspective i never you know there's no validation after that point in time so we know that the processes were broken at the beginning the machines uh there's been this big argument and dominion has sued fox etc but there was an audit that was done in the state of georgia of the machines right after the election this guy uh was brought in he's a professor from the university of michigan he's a liberal he's not a trump supporter and and he did an audit on these machines and he found three things and they finally released the results two years after the election and the results are that the the systems aren't secure a bad actor could hack into them relatively easy and and once hacked in uh they could flip an election those are the results of his audit of the machine so we know the machines aren't secure we know the processes aren't secure there's many people involved that were i believe corrupt and and uh and then even the support for the election wasn't there in in the state of georgia for example to this day there's 140,000 ballots that are hung up in the courts when they did a recount these people that were doing the recount three or four people signed affidavits saying hey these ballots all look like carbon copies 140,000 of them we want to review these we don't want to count them we want to validate that they're even legitimate which wasn't done after the election and the secretary of state is pushing back and and this has been hung up in the courts now for more than three years. And so we don't even have the support for the final numbers. And here we are three years later. And we learned a lot of things after the election. 
courts weren't there for us. The legislatures weren't there for us, even though they were Republican legislatures, the same party as Trump. Uh, the FBI DOJ wasn't there. Bill Barr now we're finding out covered up all sorts of stuff after the election. Here he was the head of the DOJ. And 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 it, there was nobody there to protect us after the election was stolen. And so it was just a start to finish. It was well planned, but it was uh, there was to me, there's there's evidence is lacking that the that the election ever was legitimate and i and just from a professional point of view so that's the unique uh, perspective that i have is that i can say hey i've looked at audits around the world i've never seen this i mean i've been involved mm. in fraud audits in japan of five million dollars i've been involved in billion dollar blocks of business audits of that i have never seen anything like this where it's such such a, it was just a just a free free for all it was just a mess <laughs> Do you have an estimate of what how much Trump really won by then? Or you can't yeah. make a statement about that? Well, you know, nobody really knows, right? But we uh, there was even a piece uh, this past week um, where somebody was saying, well, it looks like uh, a huge percentage of these ballots that came in were invalid and uh, probably 10 or 12 million at least. Uh, they were the absentee ballots. It was a, based on a poll by this legitimate polling company, Rasmussen, where 20% of the people polled said that uh, they had uh, been involved in illegitimate ballots uh, during the mail-in ballot process. So people that, that voted by mailing in said 20% said that they basically committed fraud. So I think, and that was the Democrats got all these votes mail in. Um, and can you and describe so how those frauds millions. would take place? But yeah. in what does the fraud consist? Uh, so the mail-in ballots, yeah. So what happened? Here's a great example in Phil in Pennsylvania, which is a big state, which is one of those swing states. On election day, President Trump was ahead of Biden by two million to one million. He's he's doubled Biden's totals. Biden wasn't getting anything. I mean, you could see it in his rallies. He had these circles on the ground. Nobody was showing up. Trump, in the meantime, had like 60,000 people at some of these rallies in the middle of Pennsylvania and places like that. Just, uh, just amazing crowds. So there was the momentum was with President Trump, which I think is a key sign. So on election day, Trump's up two to one. Well, then they started counting the mail-in ballots. They locked all observers out of the room so people didn't know who what was going on. And what happened was Biden then took the lead from Trump getting like four out of five of these absentee ballots and won the election in the state of Pennsylvania. Three days later, <laughs> they announced the election win for Biden and we're all like, what just happened? Because we couldn't see what happened, uh, what was going on. One, I have a, uh, I had an individual, a senior executive actuary at a major league company a real sharp switched on guy he sent me some information and he said joe i looked at this and there's a pattern in the data in phil in pennsylvania trump won around maybe 70 80 percent of each of each county on election day what happened was when the mail-in ballots were counted there was a pattern in every one of those counties out of like 100 counties trump was 40 percent less of what his margin of win was on election day uh, on the on the absentee ballot counts, almost a straight line. And so, for as an auditor, when I see patterns that are there that shouldn't be, we know something's going on. When there's patterns that aren't there that should be, it's also a red flag. This was this a huge red flag. It's as if they were they were 
you know, absolutely figured out what they needed. And here's the margin that they needed to set across the board, across the state in every county. And all these ballots were being counted in Philadelphia behind closed doors. It's, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, it's a sham. And that's what happened in uh, 2020. Just one big sham. It was a mess. Joe, we're going into a break and we'll continue about this egregious example of election theft after the break. This is TNT Radio. Anticipate potential delays for the morning commute. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 no. Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. From weather and traffic reports to news of political developments, we turn to journalists for the information we need to live our daily lives. Journalists around the world provide news that is essential for democracy, for personal freedom, and for safety and stability. Yet their ability to report freely and safely is under attack like never before. Domenic journalists are paying with their lives. They face exponential risks and they've already paid a heavy toll. Death threats, online harassment, and physical attacks are becoming a daily experience of journalists in all countries. We just want people to be safe, to be able to get our readers the information that they need to make informed decisions. They checked my phone and realized that it was Pegasus. I feel myself like I am naked at the street. These charges were politicized from the start. Facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. C'est énorme pour moi d'être là, d'être libre. Je que je m'y attendais pas du tout. Stand with the free press. Stand with journalists whose reporting won't be silenced. Press freedom is your freedom. Pella Neuroth Taylor, live from Sweden on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hello. Um, we are here with Joe Hoft, who's written three brilliant books and has followed the election steal, even as the rest of us have dropped out because life moves on. And it's a shocking story you have to tell. And I guess it's going to become, I guess, the entire Republican votership are very, very on tense and aware of the possibilities that this election will be stolen as well. Do you think, um, what's what's going to, what do you wish would happen? I mean, in, in an ideal world, how could America be preserved as a unitary country? What what reforms would need to be made? And what do you think is likely to happen if, if it goes like the way in 2020? I mean, will there be another January 6th? 
Well, um, I don't think, you know, so January 6th, I write about my second book, too. That was part of the cover up. President Trump had a million people at his rallies leading up to the election. There was never one incidence of violence, a million people, not one. And then January 6th comes along and all of a sudden there's some violence that day. It didn't make sense. Now we know that the feds had at least 200 people inserted in that crowd. They were trying their 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 goal was to create riots Four four people did die that day and they were all Trump supporters. And the media doesn't share that. They always were saying five cops died. That was a total lie. It never happened. And many of these Trump supporters have been abused terribly uh, since that day. Some people arrested, thrown in jail, and still don't even have a trial after almost four years now, some of them, three years, some of these people in jail, sitting in jail without a trial. It's it's the most egregious abuse of power by our government in, in U.S. history. It's so tyrannical. This is what we fought against back when we created the country ourselves. So, um, yeah. It, when you talk anyways, about Britain, uh, Russia locking up opponents, you know, uh, on, on Navalny, who's the sort of opposition leader in Russia, has been given an extra sentence. Russia can just say, well, you know, you lock up your political opponents for right. 21 years, I think was the longest guy who was just walking yeah. around like a tourist around the yeah. Capitol building. So, well, yeah, you know, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And and these some of these guys weren't even there and they're shoving them yeah. for 20 years. They're saying they were involved in an insurrection. They were not. These were two groups, the pay, Proud Boys and the uh, Oath Keepers. These are military men that were Christian that came in and started protecting Trump supporters and people like that at these events that were being held, rallies from violence from the left. The Antifa and Black Lives Matter crowds were violent. They killed, you know, 20, 30 people during those riots in the summer of 2020. That's what these groups were. They were good men. And suddenly they get targeted after the election with a made up story that they were involved in some sort of insurrection. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, it's just despicable what's going on with this government in D.C. You don't want to go to court there. It's a, it, you're not going to get a fair trial. Most Americans know it. And really, quite frankly, most major cities. So there's an there's an, an initiative to attack anybody that stands up and shares the truth. As a matter of fact, I'm in, still in a, in a major league case myself, my twin brother and the Gateway Pundit were being sued by these two workers in Georgia who we have on videotape after the election on election night in georgia atlanta georgia they kicked all the observers out of the room and these individuals started shoving ballots through multiple times through these tabulators and 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 it's on video multiple times every ballot you count more than once is a felony these ladies committed hundreds and thousands of felonies just on on video and they are suing us for slander and and rudy giuliani just got sued by the same group and had to pay 148 million dollars and before that oan this uh, uh conservative media outlet this is what they do they attack us just like these innocent men and women on january 6th were being attacked and it's it's this it's the stuff like you said this is the stuff that communists and fascists do they shut down their opponents they crush them they don't want them to ever say anything again they scare them to death god knows how many americans since since that year 2000 have been punished uh, the good news is there's people are still strong standing up and trying to uh, do all they can to ensure that 2020 uh, does or 2024 doesn't end up like 2020 Okay, I mean, so where does uh, where does Giuliani get his hundred forty eight million dollars from? I mean, that's a mystery. That's well, he incredible. Sum. He ended, 
Well, he doesn't have it. So he's, it's, mm. it's, uh, so he's filed for bankruptcy a day or two later. Um, he, mm. you know, they're just trying to take everything they can. Rudy's been uh, brought to court about, ten, I don't know how many times, maybe now, maybe five, maybe 10, and he hasn't done anything wrong. Roger Stone's the same way. Roger Stone's been sued now in civil cases like 11 times for January 6th, and he wasn't even there. And so this is the court system that we have in the U.S. And what the left does is they're backed by billionaires like George Soros and Reid Hoffman, the creator of LinkedIn, these billionaires that are back in the left and paying for cases against President Trump, against us, against others. And their effort is to, you know, to just push us down, it, shut us down. Is this large scale immigration that Elon Musk talked about? He went down to the border and it's hundreds of it millions. I don't you can maybe give me the exact yeah, yeah. figure is that with the aim of uh providing voting fodder for the election in, in I, november know, yeah it's a yeah it's a great question pal the um i think if that's a i think that's a sham i think that's what they've been saying and allowed to say uh about these people coming in um now it's been like 10 million under biden illegal immigrants we have no idea who they are all they have to do is come to the southern border say they're fleeing some sort of abuse and we let them in that's the law and it's insanity these people are being coached they're being paid they're being parted from panama etc up through mexico to our border where they're dropped off and and they come through thousands and thousands of innocent children across in that border like people say it's the largest child trafficking operation in world history what biden is running and it's not legal it's not legit we have laws for immigration but this is the perverse uh, destruction of america is what i think i compare it to more of a trojan horse because what we're seeing is most of these people that are crossing the border are military-aged men uh, from oh, from countries we don't know where, other than we know at least 200,000 Chinese of military age have crossed that border, along with, we believe, people from the Middle East, from Venezuela, these places that they're not coming to the U.S. to make America a better place. They It appears that they have other, other um, I think, ideas. And, and quite frankly, we could see this thing. This is my biggest fear, uh, to tell you the truth, pal, is you, that we're going to have an explosion in this country with these people that have come in. So do you think, Do you think? well, two things that could happen. I mean, Tucker Carlson tweeted whatever. He thinks that there's going to be an October surprise and the, some dramatic world event is going to lead Biden to call off the election. And he's much better connected than I am. So he must have his sources in Washington. And then the pro second possibility is that the election takes place let's say Trump wins, I think he's leading now, but the results are cancelled or, or there's more cheating or whatever or, or legislated through. The whole world is waiting with bated breath. I mean, it's the most uh, exciting or interesting event that we're all looking forward to in the world or fearing. I mean, the Brits are, are very fr frightened of Trump because he wants to leave NATO. And I don't sympathise with Trump on that, but we don't want to talk about it here. Do you think there's going to be a civil war and fighting? Um, well, I think it, it maybe not necessarily a civil war, but like I mentioned, uh, there's there's a there's maybe a million, maybe more more than a million of people in this country. We don't know who they are, and we don't know that they like America. And I could see it only took 20 people on 9/11 uh, to cause some massive destruction. What could a million people do here in the U.S.? Especially, let's say, if we start fighting overseas, and uh, mm. where's all our military is overseas? Man, there could be it could be a mess in the US. And that's my biggest concern right now. Right. Well, that's incredibly interesting. And I, I maybe 
for better or for worse, we'll have you on again to tell us a little yeah. bit about uh, further efforts uh, in the direction of cheating, uh, because it's certainly probably the top issue in the world right now. So I'd like to thank you very much, and we'll thank talk you. to you soon. This is TNT Radio. Thank you.